Uh, this is where you say a clever introduction to the podcast. Welcome to the Home Alone Minute presented by the Home Alones, one of America's best bands about the movie Home Alone. One of, if not the. I don't want to get brave. I'm not about to. Don't get scared now. <laughs> Do we say our names? We've said our names. I'm Kevin. <laughs> I'm Kevin. We do that at our shows. We say that that I'm Kevin. You're Kevin. Everybody's Kevin. Yeah, we we play in character. That's sort of borrowed from Harry and the Potters, right? The band that does songs about Harry Potter. Playing with them really showed us how amateur we are. Yeah, were. absolutely. Because we were like, oh yeah, we're all Kevin. And they're like, oh yeah, but what year are you like each of you? And it's like, I don't think there are years of Kevin's, but yes, they have specific, like I'm, I'm Harry, Harry Potter from this specific book. And you can tell by the way I look and those and their fans know the difference. Yeah. Can't say that I did, but great, great bunch of guys making great songs. They were great. Can we, how many other times can we say great? They're good guys. They were good guys. Uh, They invited us to play their annual Yule ball. Ooh, that was quite a while ago. I cannot remember. I remember having a good time. I remember learning that there's not just one band that only plays songs about Harry Potter. There are multiple bands that play songs about Harry Potter, enough to throw on like their own festival. And we stuck out as a band that didn't sing about Harry Potter, but we were still uh, greeted warmly by, by bands and fans alike. I think that says a lot about the band as well, that their fans are that great. Uh, yeah, they, gen- they generate a vibe of, of, of good tidings and, and warm, fuzzy feelings. Very welcoming and inclusive bunch. I remember seeing the, 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 what, what were they called? The Potter Puppet Pals? Was that the full name? Yeah, those were, those were interesting because it's like kind of fan fiction. Right, because they're doing their own take. Yeah, a little, little like a uh, YouTube puppet show about Harry Potter. Cute little like puppet versions of the characters, but they sort of went off and told their own stories and stuff. And it wasn't until I got home and started talking to some of my like high school students that I learned that the Potter Puppet Piles were a big deal. Like people knew them, and they were uh, pretty pretty famous, at least in the Harry Potter nerd world. That's the beauty of the internet. That's that. That's it. That's that's all the internet's ever been for. Us that's yet. it. That and Google Docs, pretty good. I like Google Docs. I I don't appreciate Google Docs enough. Like when I wake up in the morning, I should be giving more gratitude towards Google Docs, but I've just gotten very comfortable with it, so I take it for granted. I create a new Google Doc every night. Before I go to bed, I open up the Google Docs and I open up Create New and I make uh, a size 20 font, all caps, hit the caps lock, and I, I just say thank you. And what does it auto-title it, thank you? If, if you hit the title button, yeah. Is that Google's way of saying thank you back? It'd be great if I clicked up there and it said you're welcome. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime, sonny. Or it just said, no, thank you. 
for all of this data that we're stealing from you. If you didn't listen to the first episode of the Home Alone, Home Alone Minute, oh, I'm getting the title wrong. We don't even really know what the title is yet. The Home Alone Minute, presented by the Home Alones, America's uh, maybe best band about the movie Home Alone. Um, One of America's top Home Alone bands. We've got some John Williams music. We have the, we have the complete logo created by unsung hero of episode one, Cal Cooper, the lights on the, the background has sort of faded to black. We sort of get the logo in all of its, all of its glory. Uh, we get the little, the underline, uh, that's, I, it's, it's, it's just beautiful. I think, I think we gushed about the logo enough last, last episode, but we get that. Yeah. Cause the, the underline can like also be a street. Yes. Ah, so good. The little like tilted lowercase e at the end for the for the, the alone e, everything about it is perfect. Uh, I feel bad because we also talked a lot about John Williams in the first episode, but this is where his name shows up. That's the power of music that his name didn't even need to be mentioned. That's true, but yes, this is where he gets credit. So let's just roll reverse. Let's let's give him no credit this episode. Because we gave him so much last episode. Yeah, he's great. Real quick, like we, we mentioned some of them. Favorite non-Home Alone related John Williams piece of music. What, what would you go with? So I have my left brain and my you right get, brain. You get to pick one. I'm going to give you one. Jurassic Wars. That's okay. Let's see what you did. I'll allow it. No, you know what? I, I'll, I'll, I'll not be indecisive here. I'll say Star Wars. Every theme is perfect. Leia's theme is perfect. The Imperial March is perfect. Look, we'll we'll get dragged for all the people who will say, like, it was this other German composer that he stole from to do... Okay, fine. Were any of those composers making music for Star Wars? <laughs> Fair. You know what I really like is the Indiana Jones theme. Underrated one is probably Superman. You don't think of it. Because we usually lump him in with like the Steven Spielberg stuff mostly. Right. But there he is hanging out with Superman. It's doing a great job. But for a guy to do 77, knock it out of the park, and then 97, knock it out of the park, pun intended, that's wild to me. Yeah, so he he's the greatest. He's the greatest. You're right. We don't need to talk about John Williams anymore. I think he knows. He, he knows. gets it. I can't remember if we're establishing shot territory yet where we get the house with the Christmas lights on. Uh, the music shifts. We get into a Oscar-nominated song somewhere in my memory, the, the John Williams mm-hmm. tune. Um, I can't remember if that happens before or after we see what I'm going to quickly... Uh, I don't think it's premature, though. I'm I'm nominating Unsung Hero of Minute Two just because this is where their names show up. Uh, the casting directors of Home Alone. Oh, yeah. Seconded. Okay, this is Janet Hershenson and Jane Jenkins. If you if you go down the IMDB rabbit hole, like you're just you're just gonna see banger after banger after banger. Like the hits don't quit with these two. I have a quote from Janet. Let's hear that quote. A director is like a jewelry artist 
And a casting director simply supplies the stones. Love it. Love it. Uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. She's having a baby. So she's got like, you know, they, they've got they've got some John Hughes stuff. But Beetlejuice, more Catherine O'Hara. Willow, When Harry Met Sally, Parenthood, Ghost, Jurassic Park. Yeah, anything that John Williams scored that was worth listening to. Jurassic Park, Harry Potter. So you made you made uh, the point that uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the crew, a lot of a lot of the the, the players on this uh, movie are sort of like uh, newly established or just making the way. But I think yeah, uh, these two yeah, are an example and, of like heavy hitter all stars doing what they do, crushing it. Right. Yeah. The editor production designer director of photography basically the folks that come right after this in the credits those are the ones who had basically worked on heartbreak hotel and i think that was where he i think that's where chris columbus found all of them right yeah something like that or that's where john like john hughes and that that little ecosystem that was creating itself at that time it is fun to sort of like dig through these credits and sort of see how insular this process of making movies like you just want to work with the people you've worked with before. You just want to go to the people who you know are easy to work with or are going to do a good job for you because you start seeing the same names over and over when you start looking at the credits. A lot of these people kept working on the same movies with each other. John Hughes has Which, sort of like, you know, uh, a network of people that he that he goes back to over and over. So, so does Chris Columbus. Which absolutely makes sense because if you know people in Hollywood, they'll tell you that to get anything made is a miracle. Like so many things have to happen and have to be right. Not just the obvious operational things like scheduling and budgets and things like that but just so many things have to happen timing wise it has to hit in the zeitgeist blah 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 blah, blah. all these things have to happen so the variables that you can control it's like why not bring in a sure thing you gotta feel bad for the aspiring casting directors right like i see Mm. this list and basically janet hershenson and jane jenkins everything yeah anything that's anything that's good and you gotta know that there's 50 janet and jane's trying to knock on the door saying like hey i could cast your movie and john hughes and chris Columbus are like eh eh we 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 got it we got our people we're good selfish of them maybe but also they seem like the greatest they're my favorite casting directors of all time I can't name a third casting director. Why would you? There's no point. There's no need. No, no. So just because this is where their name comes up and because later on in this minute is the first time that we see the whole family. All of their work. All of their work. Like it is it's it is kind of cool. We see Jana Hershison and Jane Jenkins' names and then we see the, the product of all of their casting. We see this house just silly with people all over the place and every one of them was an artistic decision 
right? And a business decision and lots of negotiating and like this like perfect chemistry and scheduling and all that stuff. Uh, it seems like a really daunting job and like all, you know, 15, 18 of them or so are on display like in this first, uh, you know, opening of, of the film. So I'm going to, I'm going to call them heroes of minute two. Yep. Yep. Janet and Jane for sure. Which, which means that now we have a bunch of also rands, <laughs> lesser heroes of Minute Two, and all these other people that show up. There's Mark Radcliffe, EP, EP. Not a lot of work outside of outside of this before Home Alone. I did notice that his daughters are, are credited as cousins, and for the life of me, as many times as I watched Minute Two, like I'm not sure. There are some sort of like unrecognized figures sort of like roaming about. I think they kind of like filled this opening scene up with a, a few more people on top of like the ones that you just see at the dinner table and all around and on the plane and stuff. I didn't notice that. Everyone I saw in this minute, I feel like I knew. And maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't really talked about the establishing shot. I did notice something. Please. And... I'll I'll do a bit of a role reversal here, and I'll do some trivia for you. This is going to go poorly because I don't I don't have the sharp eye that you do. When we go from the title card into the establishing shot, seeing six seven one Lincoln Boulevard, the fictitious version of six seven one Lincoln Avenue, <laughs> uh, is the garage. Open or closed? Okay, so I'm seeing it's at like sort of an angle. We don't get like the Wes Anderson like like front facing shot. It's sort of at an angle. It's tilted. The white Christmas lights are on. Right, and the garage is sort of to the left. Behind it, we see what in real life is 696 Prospect Avenue on the other side. On Google Maps. Yes, but that garage. The cars are still here. They didn't go to the airport. But is it open at this at night? Uh, I'm. I, you know what? I'm flipping a coin here. But I'm going to go with that. It's open. It's open. That's some continuity. Who's the uh, who's the who's our uh, who's our line producer making sure that that garage is open? Not credited until the post credits sequence well but when we man, get to those man we're gonna clap it up for whoever that is again one of the many variables that makes the movie great is i i know and we will probably do some nitpicking right we'll probably do some like this doesn't make any sense this is silly but for the most part one of the reasons that i love this movie is that like it all makes sense it all it flows does. in a natural seamless way where circumstance and plot and theme all just sort of like merge together beautifully. And it's like those little things that the garage is already open and they're going to forget to close the garage. It's going to make him be confused. It's the reason that he thinks he made his family disappear and doesn't just call the airport. It's what Peter thought was the thing they were forgetting. Yeah. I've got to close the garage. That's it. And then Kate immediately goes, no, which is, which is a a nice sort of sub theme 
I think you and I are of uh, a demographic that appreciates Kevin's journey in this movie. I got to think that my mom felt differently watching this movie, right? Like the power of a mother's love, the I'll stop at nothing to make sure that my kid's okay. That stuff is moving along beautifully in Catherine O'Hara's sections of the movie and getting developed alongside Kevin's uh, journey. What's nice about it is like she's not learning any lessons. It's just how she responds naturally, right? Uh, it's yeah. not a hokey sitcom kind of thing where uh, she she she's she's a little mean to Kevin, which I guess we'll get sure. to later. But it's it's not like she needs to redeem herself. She just loves her kid. Well, you you love that, and you also love a woman who has a child. Because one of the things that we do when we become fathers is we learn to appreciate a mother's intuition. Oh, yeah. Because we are so analytical and we've done the research and we've seen, we've heard, we've watched, we know, but they know in a very different way that we will just never know. And a mother's intuition is something that you come to appreciate and trust more and more. So that that quick realization that no, it's not the garage like that yeah, that it lends wasn't, itself to it wasn't the, a very real truth that that you and I as people who love a mother have seen now. Where how do you know that that's what the kid needs? Because it's magic. Like you have that right. you have magic that I do not have inside of me. Yeah, I will just never have that. It switches into uh, like it switches tunes. Like we're here in the like the home alone theme. And then it switches to somewhere in my memory, which is, I guess the name of the song, but is it the name of this song or is, is it only that song when we hear the lyrics later? What, what counts here? No, I'd say that is because we, we could, we could call this opening section like a medley. Yeah. And part of that medley is, Somewhere We're hearing a memory. movement from somewhere in my memory. Am I using the right terminology yeah, I'd say there? That's right. Okay. And for those of you who don't know what's what, somewhere in my memory is the two notes that you hear on airplanes and elevators. Bing, boom, bing, boom. Correct. And then John Williams takes it a step further. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a remix. <laughs> the chopped and screwed. Somewhere in my memory. Oh, those Gen Zers. They didn't know what happened in Houston for that like 18 months. The next name that, that comes up on the credits is Raja. Raja Gosnell. Am I pronouncing that right, you mm, think? I'd say so. I certainly don't know, but it sounds right. Uh, he's the editor. Raja, please come on and tell us. Please, Raja. If we're correct. We're a big deal. He's our editor. Yep. Phenomenal work. I'm gonna incredible. I'm gonna give it to the casting director. Maybe we can find out once Raj's on. We'll call him the unsung hero of, of whatever episode he's on because there's great editing throughout. Roger Gosto goes on to a, uh, a a pretty good line of like directing gigs after this. He's the Robert Wise of Home Alone, Citizen Kane. Robert Wise edited Citizen Kane. Goes on to. Be, be a director, does all sorts of good stuff. Raja edits 
Home Alone. Then he starts directing a whole bunch of other uh, children's movies. It makes sense. He's been at the very end, so it makes sense that he would have a a knack for what needs to happen at the very beginning. Does a does a good editor make a good director? You think? I'd say going that way has a higher likelihood of success than the other way. Oh, he edited a Pretty Woman the same year as Home Alone. But he's also credited on Heartbreak Hotel. So like you're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, probably pulled him from that work. But he also does Home Alone 2. He does Mrs. Doubtfire. He does the Miracle on 34th Street remake that John Hughes did. He does Nine Months. But director-wise... Big Mama's House, Never Been Kissed, the Scooby-Doo movies, the Smurfs movies, Beverly Hills Chihuahua. I wouldn't call these classics, but the man can get a movie made. I'd agree. Um, after Raja, we've got John Muto, production designer. How much, how much say do you think John Muto had in decorating this house? I'd say a ton. And it's something that is a huge call out for this minute because this is where we see like because the interior of this home, which is wallpaper city opulent, very sort of early nineties, like rich people decor. There's framed pictures everywhere. There's art. There's those weird sort of like columny looking things by the door. This is very much my mom's. Yeah, marble tables with This is the way my mom decorated a house, but we didn't have money. <laughs> this is the way that your mom attempted to decorate a uh, house. Yeah, yeah. This was the goal, maybe not what ended up actually happening. Um, very, very like, like one of the people, uh, like you said, you know, kind of, kind of broke, was doing Heartbreak Hotel, moved on to Home Alone. Nothing huge before that. Uh, Night of the Comet, uh, Gleaming the Cube year before in 89. So this is something that can't be unseen. So I'll give everyone a bit of a glass shattering moment here. Find anything in this house, not just decor, but permanent Parts, furniture, wallpaper. Find anything that's not red or green. It's true. This this house is crispest up. Like permanent. Yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I'm saying. The wallpaper like, of the, the house. It's a Christmas house. The art is red and green. The chairs, the couches, they are red or green. Everything in this house. Very intentional, right? Because it it seeps it seeps it, it although unnatural, right? No no house actually makes those choices. But that's the that's that's where like you got to give it to John here because it doesn't feel unnatural. Because if I didn't point that out, you might not think about. But you it. feel it, right? Yes. Uh, and that's I think that's the difference between people who just know a craft and people who like have it built into them and are experts in their field is that they can make you feel it. And this feels like a Christmas movie because of those little details, right? That you're not really picking up. Right. You don't walk out of this movie saying like, all the wallpaper is red and green. That's stupid. If I were to ask just your average person who, maybe even people who, you know, watch 
architectural digest tours or, or whatever and ask them what the vibe of the house was, they might say like, oh, it was like a, you know, Ralph Lauren kind of rustic vibe, which does have a lot of those like muted red and greens, but not exclusively so. I, I dare you to find a blue, <laughs> a yellow. It's, it's not there. Right. Uh, I do kind of, uh, I, I guess I said we would nitpick sometimes. This is a perfect film. Sometimes I do sort of wonder, like, why did they decorate the whole house for Christmas if they're going to France? Why bother? There are a couple of legitimate answers, I'd say. One is that you're not decorating for the holiday. You're decorating to get yourself in the headspace of the holiday. Who knows how long those decorations have been up? When you were a kid watching this movie, did you think of Kevin's family as rich and specifically like richer than you way rich i thought they were crazy rich i knew it was a big house i knew the wet bandits wanted to rob them because they had all the nice stuff but for some reason probably because i'm very similar age to kevin i just identified so much with the character that I didn't feel that disconnect. Does that make sense? Like my parents aren't millionaires. Kevin's parents clearly are clearly, but I still related to them. I still thought, Oh, this kid is like me. This family is a little wacky, but it's not too, it's not so far removed from my experiences. And it was only years later that I was like looking at that house. You and I have been to that house. And I think that's what it kind of hit me is looking at the house in person and going, oh, this is a really big house. <laughs> and when I, <laughs> when I put it up to the mental image of the home that I grew up in, it's, it's way, way nicer. Yeah, and every eight-year-old sees every house as big. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of it, yeah. Because a house is big. Like You can't wrap your head around a house at eight years old. Another um, another fun credit for uh, John Muto is T2 3D Battle Across Time, the Universal Studios 3D movie of Terminator 2. He's credited as production designer of, of that cinematic experience. Which, hats off for that, because you're having to go into a very known universe and not only recreate it in the same quote-unquote medium, but do it for a different kind of medium and audience? Something that's designed to be played like eight minutes at a time on a loop for decades. And that some people will rewatch in like the same day. Like people will go and ride it a couple of times. I mean, I'm looking through his filmography. I think I've seen Home Alone more than anything else. I think I've seen T2 3D Battle Across Time. I think I've seen that second most to everything on his. Because <laughs> I've definitely watched it every time I've been to Universal since I was like 16 years old. I've seen it, I don't know, four or five times at least. Yeah, so that's that's a challenge that I don't think a lot of people would realize. But again... He's not coming from scratch. 
he's coming from a very, very well-established universe that has some very specific looks and feels and parts. And it's sci-fi, but believable. I wonder how the production designer of Terminator 2 Judgment Day feels about John Muto coming in and taking this gig. Maybe it was a scheduling thing. Maybe uh, maybe the original guy just wasn't available, so they, they had him come in. It's like how half the voice actors are different on the video game. On what video game? Just generally the video game. <laughs> the video game? I could actually I could actually use the the theme park ride as the same thing like voice actors some of them are the same ones as the film and some of them are sound alike Oh uh, most of the most of the toy story toys that you get in like the video games and stuff Oh yeah it's uh it's Tom Hanks's brother doing the voice He sounds an Dom Hanks I forget what his name is but he sounds enough like Tom Hanks to be able to pull that off so that's uh that's the nice little paycheck for him. And Tom Hanks doesn't have to sit down and, you know, record the, all the lines for the CD ROM that my little brother played on a loop, played for hours at a time for, for five full years. Uh, next, yeah, you probably heard his brother more than him. Uh, Ooh, no, I've watched a lot of toy story. I have okay. a two and a half year old. We've, we, we celebrate the, quadrilogy quite a bit around here fair fair uh next on the list is a director of photography yep julio macat yeah again julio come on the podcast tell us how to pronounce your name i've seen some interviews with him and he's so cool like he seems like a director of photography he's mostly um you know what i mean he's mostly credited with music videos before this so he's like like he sees things <laughs> like like you see that guy walking around with his with his hands in the rectangle shape you know letterbox yeah 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 but he doesn't do that because he's too cool to do that he just sees it he sees that kind of silhouette around images he's like ooh. he's uh he's he's interrupting dinner with his wife a lot going like hold on honey and he like he's got to stand on a chair and <laughs> <laughs> look at something from a certain angle for a while uh pretty 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 common sort of trajectory for people to go from like music videos to working on on movies it seems like music videos especially of this era right are like sort of a proving ground for a lot of uh uh director david fincher got his start in music videos right before moving on to movies well and and back and forth too like there are people who went from cinema to music videos because the 90s into the 2000s like huge budgets for music videos people were buying islands and stuff like it became a legitimate art form and maybe because of julio do you think he's the trendsetter is he the first this this is a deeper dive than 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 i'm prepared to go into but i wonder who is sort of like the first guy to sort of graduate on a on a level of notoriety, like David Fincher is the name that comes to my mind, right? Like he's doing Nine Inch Nails videos and then he jumps into like Alien 3 and 7 and that stuff, right? I wonder, I wonder who else, who else that maybe we don't know because they are just directors of photography. They are like sort of like those, uh, you know, uh, uncredited people. MTV didn't say that Julio McCat was the director of photography. Like that's not listed on the, in the little white text that shows up in the corner before a video, right? You're kind of asking two questions though. 
let's say that's the funnel and the proving ground, like you say. There are people who are doing music videos and then graduate to doing film. But it doesn't say anything about the quality of those music videos before. Like, did we have a film director who was just doing music videos to start? You know what I'm saying? I think so. Like, there are people who are doing music videos the way that they think that they should do music videos and then graduate to film. And then there's someone like, like you say, David Venture and maybe Julio's the same. They're doing film in the context of music videos before they do. They're already doing movie quality work just in the medium of a music video. And it doesn't take long for, for game to recognize game and for them to move swiftly up into, uh, I gotta, I gotta think it's a bigger paycheck to direct alien three than, uh, a nine inch nails video. Yeah. But maybe not a Will Smith video. I'm trying to think of, um, Famous Will Smith videos beyond like Men in Black. Welcome to Miami. I've never, I, that that doesn't like produce an image in my head. Is that just him and like a with the with the top down, riding around in a car with women? You're gonna edit this out, but I'd love to just really quickly look at the data around this. Okay, the floating Miami set cost five hundred thousand dollars. The cost for that. Video was two million dollars. Two million dollars for Will Smith's Miami, Will Smith's Miami. Music video. Yep, off the album Big Willie style. Ooh, Wild Wild West cost three million. Wild Wild West Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West. Roll into the. Sorry, I just <laughs> glad we settled that. Will Smith still. Trading out the big bucks for his uh for his music videos even in two thousand two, two thousand one maybe. Mm. Yeah, w- well, it was right at the turn of the millennium. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so after Julio, we get the executive producers, Mark Levinson, Scott Rosenfeld. Again, like not a lot of credited work. Beyond Home Alone, I've got, I've got Teen Wolf, I've got Mystic Pizza. Not much else. Well, and this is just economics, right? Because executive producers, it can mean all sorts among of many things. other. Yeah, it can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it just means that you you wrote a check. Sometimes it means right. that you just did one little thing to get the movie made. You put two people in the same room together, and sometimes it means that you did all sorts of stuff. Right, but. If you start out writing $10,000 checks, and as you go on, you start writing $100,000 checks, million-dollar checks, etc., it stands to reason that you would slowly graduate through to higher and higher budget films. Yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's, hard. It's, it's, it's difficult for people watching the movie to know what an executive producer did. We see right. casting director, we see editor, we see production designer, and those those jobs you can kind of wrap your head around, and someone can explain it to you. When you see executive producer, that could mean 20 different things for a movie. So what did Mark Levinson and Scott Rosenfeld do on this movie? We don't know. Obviously important enough to right. be credited as executive producers. 
but in terms of yeah, did they lead a funding round? Right. Or did they just put Chris Columbus and John Hughes on the phone together? Was it just their idea for those two to make a movie together? Are they the ones that rented out the school that were their production offices? Yeah, like maybe, but I don't think that that's, you know, what they usually do. No. Uh, and I think we have another uh, executive producer, Tark- Tarquin Gotch. Great name. Really great name. That's a superhero name. And Tarquin Gotch seems to be the one who brings Chris Columbus and John Hughes together. Because Tarquin Gotch is credited with Only the Lonely, a Chris Columbus joint. And Curly Sue and Dutch with their John Hughes mm. thing. So I think Tarquin is maybe the. Wait, Curly Sue was after though. Right? After, but it seems like this is the relationship that. Oh, that, I see what you're saying. You know, maybe he, maybe Tarquin is the one that has a relationship with both of them uh, before. Mm. I don't know. Again, it's hard with executive producer credits to figure out what they did. Like Tarquin is at lunch with Chris Columbus and Chris, like me, it's a huge Christmas fan. He's like, man, I just want to do a Christmas movie. And Tarquin's like, you know, who's writing one right now? My buddy, John. And he pulls out one of those big blocky cell phones. that's like as big as the table. Right. And says he's on the line. Right. And I'd like an EP credit for this, for this interaction, please. Sold. So then after the EP credits, we get, we get the specific credits. It's already been a John Hughes right. production and a Chris Columbus film, but this is where we get that it was written by John Hughes, directed by Chris Columbus. I think we've talked enough yes. about these two legends. And we'll continue to. Right. Let's be real. And then we then we get into now the movie's happening. Now we get movie. So we're not gonna talk about people listed. <laughs> but actual movie happening. So I, I, I do hope maybe the audience stuck around past uh, credits talk with the Home Alones. But uh, Cricket's noise. here we go. We get the establishing shot, and then we get a nice L cut of hearing the voices inside of of the house before we whoa, go inside. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time okay. out. Time out. This is a little inside baseball for the listeners. What is an L cut? An L cut would be that you are cutting your audio and your video at different places. Usually it allows you to uh, hear something before or after you see the thing that you're about to see. So for the sake of Home Alone, we're seeing the exterior shot. We're seeing the nice brick house uh, with the Christmas lights. And then it, it seems like the, the interior audio, the audio inside the house kind of fades up. It kind of lifts. Yeah, it's yeah, softer. Yeah. We don't quite hear what's going on. But but it, it comes in and then so we hear a lively house, right? We hear we hear the McAllister home with everybody running around and then we cut inside, right? Yeah. When we're in the 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 we would call it a foyer because we're from the American South. Yeah. A vestibule? Yeah. We wouldn't call it a foyer. Foyer? Yeah, it's a foyer, and in relation to the stairs, it's like a landing. I guess it would be a landing. I think in the script, which I have a copy of, at least an early draft, the uh, John Hughes even calls it the foyer. Ah. On the slug line. And what is a slug line? It tells you in the script where you're at. 
Interior, house, foyer, night. That's what it says. And it's spelled foyer, not foyer. What do you spell it different if you pronounce it that way? Isn't that the anglicized version of the word? Oh, I don't know. Either pronunciation, acceptable, according to Oxford, foyer, foyer. Uh, same, same spelling, though. An entrance hall or other open area in a building used by the public, especially a hotel or theater. People also ask, why is it called foyer? It originally was a term in French that referred to the room where actors waited when they were not on stage. Which is funny because we use foyer for lobby interchangeably in some areas, which is a very different place in a theater because a lobby is not a green room. Well, and also we use it for a very, very small portion of my house, which is not McAllister sized. And it seems like, uh, especially the French pronunciation might uh, refer to something that we're seeing when we cut to the inside of this home, because that's one thing that we like, we take in is just how opulent and big this house is, how big this family is. Um, I'll read what the script says, because I, I like it. And what's okay. uh, a fun yeah. part of this is seeing some of the differences from, uh, I think I'm looking at the fourth draft. It's dated January 17th, 1990. So pretty late in the game. But this would have been a shooting script because it's got some sort of uh, uh, it's it's got some scenes that say omitted and things like that. Those are those are those are terms that would only show up. They're numbered for like production schedules and stuff like that. So we're definitely looking at like a script that was used on set at some point. But uh, interior house foyer night. A uniformed police officer is standing here, middle aged, paunchy. Is that not a pretty good description of what we're looking at? With Joe Pesci, right? Again, casting. He's standing alone trying to catch the attention of passing adults and children who cross the foyer, go up and down the stairs and in and out of the house carrying clothing, luggage, toiletries, and wrapped Christmas presents. And then the only line of dialogue that's in the script is, excuse me, may I? Is your mother home? And all of that extra dialogue on top of that is just sort of manufactured on set or developed later yeah the fact that joe pesci does like little guy little guy big fella big fella big fella but also like what everybody's saying like that's another again it's another detail that i think is all feels so natural everything that everybody's saying makes sense it sounds like like that like stage work but the mics are on Leslie's asking them to help make beds in the living room. Right. And like Jeff and Fuller, they're like playing pirate swords up and down the stairs. Yeah. Well, by the way, congratulations, Fuller, Kieran Culkin on your Golden Globe win recently. Not, congratulations. not sure when we're putting this out, but that's, uh, that's, that's very recent news as we're recording. And congratulations, Janet, for launching the career. I would love to ask if that was an easy decision. It, is it like a two for one special? Is it get one, get one coking, get the other one 50% off? Is it just, I have to imagine just because transportation alone is that much cheaper. Right. But he's, but he's also so great. Like, I just wonder how much, how much of that was earned. How much of that just, just kind of made sense. Well, it's easy to see it in retrospect, right? Like, when you see 
succession or whatever. You're like, he is a talent in his own right, period. Agreed. But did they know that in 1990? Well, it also makes perfect sense to just cast someone who looks like Macaulay Culkin into his family. And an, and another reason that I think uh, casting is such a big part of this movie is that like the whole family looks different, but when you see them all together, it makes sense that they're all related. Buzz and Kevin don't look anything alike, but I kind of buy that but- there are two streaks in that family. You could either be a redhead or you could be a blonde. Those right. are your choices. It, so you've got the Buzz Jeff line. Yeah, you got like Buzz Jeff, which seems to come from like the Catherine O'Hara like lineage, right? Right. And then like all of Peter's kids have that very sort of waspy, blondish kind kind of look, right? Yeah. Where does Megan fit in there, though? I think I think she's very much the the Peter side. Okay, I'll buy it. Another great point. Another point. I don't know if it's a great point. You tell me if it's a great point, Jared. Um, <laughs> But something that that appeals to me is how we get introduced into this world. Not a lot of movies start off with the bad guy. Some movies do, but not all movies start off with the bad guy. But they do here. And of those movies that do start with, with your villain, by that first scene, you know that they're the villain, right? They're being bad in the beginning. Here we've got Joe Pesci being what looks like a good guy. And it's not till later that we find out that he's, he's the bad guy. So all we see is a police officer struggling, right? And that's what lets us into this world so elegantly is that we're, we're seeing it from his point of view. And point of view is, is really well done here and throughout this whole movie because we're constantly on somebody's side. It's usually Kevin's mm. side, but later it's Kate's side. But at, in this opening moment, we're on this police officer's side because he's just thrown into chaos and he clearly has something he's trying to get done. And this family, this gigantic chaotic family is in his way. Mm. And it's such an elegant way to do it because the easier way, I guess the lazier way would be to show Kevin struggles with his family first to start with that and, and establish the idea like, Oh, this kid is getting ignored and dumped on by his family, which we get straight into after this. But this is such a, an artful way to get into this world of this family is by showing us, by showing it to us from the point of view of what's going to be the villain of the movie. That is indeed a good point. Thank you. Oh, good. Not great. I'll take it. I'll take good point. As I sit with it, it will likely become great. Okay. I've sat with it. It's a great Thank point. Thank you. Thank you. You're right, because that character, when you first see him, you assume he's an auxiliary character for the purpose of exposition. You think he has equal footing as the pizza guy. Right. Maybe a little bit more because, like I say, I think he is there for exposition. He's supposed to be establishing, like, timelines. He's saying a few things to the family. He's giving the family an opportunity to say a couple of things externally that if no one else were in the house, they would not be saying these things. 
Is it not completely wild how everyone is ignoring this police officer in the home? That's another really strong signal that they're rich. (laughs) It does. It really does speak to privilege, right? Like I don't have to give this uniformed officer who's standing inside the home any attention. I could just fly right by him. But it also, that also lends credence to the idea that they absolutely could have left Kevin home alone, right? Everybody else thinks that someone else is going to talk to this cop. Someone else must be talking to this dude. So I'm going to keep on packing. I'm going to have a sword fight with my cousin. Everybody else thinks that someone else will handle this, which is what happens to Kevin too. So prior to it being called Home Alone, it's possible it could have had a working title of diffusion of responsibility. It's what leads. It's what leads to our inciting incident for sure. We see it later in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, where they pass where they pass this bag down. Give this to Kevin. Give this to Kevin. Give this to Kevin. Give this to Kevin. Kevin's not here. Kevin's not here. Kevin's not here. No one's worried that Kevin's not here until we get it back to Kate, right? And it's the same thing going going on here. We established that this I mean this is this is what 6 seconds and we already know so much about what's happening in this world. Hats off to John and Chris here because they play this note a couple of different times without it sounding monotonous because you get it with the cop, you get it with the pizza guy, like they are hitting you with it a few ways. Like no one's paying for the pizza. No one's acknowledging the cop. Like you get a few different versions of this. I've I've got to think that they feel spent, redundant. I got to think that John Hughes especially spent so much time making sure that you buy the premise, right? Because if you hear that this is a movie about a kid who gets left, his family goes on vacation without him. Your first thought is that would not happen. So he has to do right. He's he's objection handling out of the game. He has to handle so much to make it where you go. Well, yeah, I see how I see how they left him. Look how crazy that house was. That's the best way to write your opening scene for any film. Go pitch the premise to people, and whatever their objections are, your opening scene is just establishing all that and answering all the questions that the preview would raise. Right? Correct. We establish this craziness. Joe Pesci can't get anyone to pay attention to him. And then we cut to a much quieter part of the house in right. the master bedroom. And Kate McAllister, mom, Catherine O'Hara, she's she's on the phone. She's packing. And Kevin doesn't come in yet. We we, we only get the first few, few moments of her getting ready. We settle into this new scene uh, before minute two is over. Yeah. More red, more green. Exactly. Yeah. We're in a new room, different wallpaper, but same still red, still green vibe. Like there's, you're right with the production design. There's, it really does feel like Kate McAllister decorated this house and she has, she has an aesthetic. She looks like the house to me. Like she, she dresses that way. She kind of carries herself that way. Well, the house is a character, (laughs) right? Like his name's in the title. Home. And he's there almost alone if it weren't for Kevin. I'm being a little cheeky there, but but truly, I, I do think that the, ho- the house is a character. Well, it does right? have like, sort of a line when the furnace turns on. 
<laughs> it's also Kevin's instrument. I think that's a right? better like, way of putting it. At the beginning of the movie, he's not master of this home. He's not master of anything. He's a helpless little child. And then he learns to wield the house. He he takes he in, takes in ownership an effort of to it. defend. Yeah, yeah. There's a subtle difference in the way that Kate McAllister is portrayed in the way that we see her in the film and what is lined up in the script that we can look at. And I wanted to take a look at that. Uh, So we're in the interior master bedroom at night. Kate McAllister is talking on the phone and packing a suitcase. Here are the two adjectives she gets. She's handsome and energetic in her early 40s. Jared, would you call Catherine O'Hara handsome? No. I would call her striking. Maybe elegant. My wife called her the most beautiful person in this movie. Easy. I disagree, but we'll get to that on a later episode. Is it the French desk girl? It is. Yep. I'm sorry. There's no way I can do that. (laughs) No, she says, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a... She's got got age on her side. But Catherine O'Hara, of course. Handsome, according to John Hughes... And energetic in her early 40s, still dressed from work, which I didn't think about. But when you look at what she's wearing in the scene, she does look like she's still dressed from work. She has sort of like a professional businessy kind of look. She has like a coat on. Yeah. Like she just got home or something, right? Yeah. So again, lending, it's lending that to like, oh, these people really are busy. They're hurried. They're privileged and wealthy. Yeah. But they are. Yeah. They're very hurried. They're new money. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Like, this might not be generational wealth that they're just sitting on. She's on the phone to earn that money. We, we, get, we get the impression that she works, Peter works, everybody's working here. There's a big difference, I think, between what she says on the phone here in the movie and what's written in the script. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Well, do you remember what she says? She's talk- clearly talking on the phone with, like, a friend or a neighbor or something like that, right? Yeah, she's talking about, she says Peter's brother. She, she doesn't say Frank. Right, she says Peter's, so Peter's brother and his family are here. Oh, it's crazy. So again, another note, just like things are crazy. And she's acknowledging it, right? She's admitting that it's crazy around here, but she does it in sort of like right. a fun way. Like it's nothing we can't handle. It's crazy. Oh, it's crazy. And then we hear the, she sounds like she's saying it to someone who's heard her say that about many other things. It's true. Um, and then we can, I think it's kind of funny how well we can hear the person on the other line. Maybe with the surround sound set up, you have at your house. <laughs> I think the last time I listened, it was with my AirPods in. So maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I did have it like sort of at close range. And again, but you're right. Maybe, maybe uh, a second, unsung hero of this of this of this minute is the sound editor because there's a lot going yeah. on in the you know all of those people running around the house were probably looped in later i don't know if there's a microphone where would you put a mic those chops are so wide i don't know great mix though you're right. yeah yeah and then we we hear whoever kate's talking to say you know trish is going to montreal which is french in its own way <laughs> it's true like like a like a foyer State Farm is there. And then Kate says, Montreal, oh, that's right, her family's there. Just 
very basic, like people travel for Christmas, like they are going to travel for Christmas. But in the script, I think we get a little more characterization for, for Kate that maybe they realize after the fact that they don't quite need. I'll, I'll read you the line. You tell me what it says about Kate. In the script, she says, I don't want any calls. I'm not going to France so I can spend the holidays on the phone. She sounds over it. She sounds over work? It. Over it. Saying, I don't want any calls. It's also unclear who she's saying that to. So to me, that implies that she's talking to someone from work. I think the only person you would say, I don't want any calls to is your secretary, your administrative assistant. Your executive business partner. Thank you. You say, I don't want any calls to someone if you have enough status at your job where you have someone who can not forward your calls, who can screen your calls for you. So that shows us that Kate is high status, high status working woman, high up there. I'm not going to France so I can spend the holidays on the phone. So she's smart enough to disconnect, to unplug, right? Let's us know that she's going to, to France which probably we cut that because we get told that they're going to France later on. So we don't need that there. I think it's an interesting choice to remove that characterization from her in the finished product. Like as if we don't need that part of her, right? We don't need to know that she's like this busy working woman. It's just enough that she was a frantic mom who now wants her kid back. It's, it's the, it's the true artistic choice to remove the layers. It's Coco Chanel saying, before you leave the house, take off one item. Yeah. It's yeah, exactly. Brad Wood, the producer, saying, remove some tracks. We get enough confidence out of her to see her holding it together in the chaos of this house, right? Pete's brother and his family are here. Oh, it's crazy. Let's us know that she's cool. Let's just know that, like, you know, sure, things are crazy, but she's holding it together right now. Yeah, it, it feels less forced. It's more universal. She's she's every mom. She doesn't have to be a high-status executive mom. Did they just have her riff on the phone, and then they go back in and record what would have been the responses on the other line? Part, part of it is bringing in Catherine O'Hara, right, and letting her develop this character and make it work for her. That's got to be an element to it. Because she is no stranger to improv. No. Now that you know who it is, now you can write for that person. And this is just a subtle subtle detail that makes it more right because Catherine O'Hare is the person who's delivering it. And she doesn't need the, you know, hold my calls. I'm a a busy, important businesswoman here. Do you understand the impulse of, especially when you're uh, doing the very, difficult work of establishing just how could a family forget their kid to make that uh well she's a busy businesswoman right she's got like she's taking phone calls she's doing this look at this family is out of control but you don't need it and it also maybe turns her into kind of like a villain in the fact that like oh maybe she's not paying enough attention to her family she's got to reprioritize when it's a more lovely message theme like to just to flip the switch and get her get her kit back instead of have to learn the lesson. Right. I love the movie Elf, but it's not nearly as good as Home Alone. 
And James Caan does sort of that that thing in that movie, right? He's overworked. He's too busy. He's not making time for his family. They could have easily done that with Kate here. And we would buy it for the logic of the movie world, but it it doesn't ring as true. It's not as magical. Well, it, it became a Christmas movie trope. The woman who goes back to the small town and is like, you forgot the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, yeah, yeah. They could have gone that route. But I just thought like sort of like overworked and like not paying attention to your kid. Going back to your earlier point that uh, about the sort of mother's love, mother's intuition, she didn't have to learn a lesson. She was just responding. Right. Which I think is not to say there's no there's no development. It's not there's no character growth for her. It's just that she's not doing the very tired kind of character growth that we would see if she were overworked. Yeah, it's it's so much it's so much more elegant here than what what it would have been in the hands of less talented filmmakers. Yeah. So good. So good. And would we have gotten some of that if we hadn't cast the perfect mother thank you janet hershenson and jane jenkins the true heroes of minute two of home alone yeah yeah who that's my favorite part of the slow clap is the guy who who audibly goes, yeah, <laughs> the, the guy who like breaks the, the breaks, the cheering barrier, the slow cheer, the slow cheer sounds like an emo band from the nineties. Uh, anything else about a uh, minute, minute two, we need a, we need a hit on Jared. No, I, th- I think that's the perfect way to go out is just the, on the unsung heroes, right? <laughs> I, I love just saying that home alone is great over and over and <laughs> over again in slightly different ways and how many more episodes are we going to say home alone is so so good we've got 102 left now 101 101 dalmatians it's kind of a perpetual motion machine though because every one of these mo- like minutes reminds you how good it is so like it doesn't feel tired we're only 2 minutes in but i agree that focusing on two minutes just makes me appreciate that single minute more. It makes me appreciate everything that's on both sides of it more. Yeah. We're dealing with a really good movie and we haven't even met Macaulay Culkin yet. Yeah. We've, we've only seen the yin and the yang of Joe Pesci and Catherine O'Hara. I guess they are sort of, uh, both. Yeah. Two, two sides, uh, two opposing forces with Kevin in between them. Right. Yeah. And again, it would be really easy to have like that kind of showdown, right? It would be really easy for for a lazier, less uh adept filmmaker to have Kate show up and give the wet bandits a, a real good whack in the head, a, 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 you know, just slap them and have tell them off because she's changed so much. She's learned and she's not going to like Hit, hit them yeah, with a broom yeah. as she chases them yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. You don't touch my boy. And also, I'm going to take a vacation. Uh, I've already called <laughs> the office. You know, like, that's it, that's just not what we do here. So good. It's so good. It's so good. We really need a so good count 
the listeners at home can keep score of how many times. <laughs> Take a drink every time these idiots go. That's so good, though. I had a math teacher at 11th grade who said, okay, like Mr. Mackey, like legit, like Mr. Mackey on South Park. She said, okay, every time she was explaining stuff. And once I, I tally marked all the MKs for, uh, for a class period, and I think I hit 100 and couldn't do it anymore. We had one that did that. It's in a yearbook. I'll I'll find it because it, it got documented in the yearbook as uh, there was some like trolly mentions of it that weren't. Yeah, um, correct. I'm a I'm a yearbook advisor. I make yearbooks, and I I've been guilty of accidentally letting my staff hurt some teachers' feelings. Well, because you don't know that they're inside jokes. Well, you don't know what they're referencing all the time. And you don't know what they're sensitive about. It's not it's not that they slid something by me, it's that they mentioned something that I was like, "Oh yeah, that'll that'll roll right off their backs." And it turns out that it doesn't roll right off some people's backs. Some people are kind of sensitive about uh we we all are, right? We're all sensitive. So if you're bringing up that one teacher says the same thing over and over or one teacher's a little a little more boring than another or something like that, you know, that's probably not something that they're proud of. Just cut to them in a dark room. It says 2023 resolutions be more engaging. And they're just like, <laughs> just trying, just trying their best. Just trying their best. But that they're like, they spent all year to be more engaging. And they're like, they're the most boring teacher award. Well, I mean, and speaking of, of casting, you know, trying to figure out the, the energies of people and, and being true to who they are. I mean, that's, that's true for teaching too. I think you have to be honest about what kind of person you are. And the second you try to be inauthentic, the kids smell it on you. So if you are a naturally extroverted, high energy, gregarious kind of person, you can teach effectively that way. And if you're more of an introvert, if you're a little drier, if you're a little more straight to the point, if you're quiet, you can be an effective teacher that way. You got to lean into it. You got to play to your strengths. Just like in Home Alone, somehow. Be yourself. That's all they're doing, right? Actually, they're pretending to be other people. Yeah. Remember, actors, be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> which which cast member of Home Alone do you think is most like they're, the person they're portraying? I have a hard time believing that Uncle Frank is like Uncle Frank in real life. I bet he's a cool dude. To play Uncle Frank that way, that well, you can't be like that. Horrible. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better. I forgot my reading glasses. Terrible. So not him. Uh, Aunt Leslie? Is Aunt Leslie sort of like that in real life anyway? Or are there like a lot of tattoos underneath that dress? Yeah, is she not very school marmy in real life? John Hurt, I think, might be. Yeah, he's because he he kind of has just sort of straight a kit like over the plate dad vibes, classic American dad vibes, CADVs. Because one thing I have caught myself saying about my son is, "What a funny guy." <laughs> that is a good delivery. That's that's later on. That's that's about a hundred episodes from now. <laughs> that's all he has to say about his kid. That's all he has to say. His kid just spent days 
all by himself just admitted that he went to the grocery store and did shopping. And he just goes, what a funny guy. <laughs> huh? Milk, eggs, and fabric softener. But that's, that's my response to anything. I'm just like, what a funny guy. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that, that might've just been his natural reaction to his kids. So yeah, he might be the most like his character. Let's, 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 let's go with it. Let's go with it. Until Kira uh, comes on and tells us otherwise. He would know. He would know. You think he'll bring his golden globe? 